1: Right now, we want to turn our attention to healthy Doritos because it sounds so good and uh, it's getting close to that time of day when it it is time for a snack. Jenny Kaplan joins us right now. Jenny Kaplan is beverage, tobacco and cannabis reporter for Bloomberg News, and she joins us in our 1130 studios. So, uh, Jenny, you know, I'd love to get your sense on, uh, first of all, why it's taken so long for some of these traditional junk food purveyors to healthify some of these foods and whether there's really an appetite for that.
2: Well, PepsiCo generally and and Frito-Lay specifically has been working for some time to make healthier versions of their snacks, both these core brands like Doritos and Cheetos and Tostitos, and also create new products, uh, new kinds of snacks that fit with the consumer, What's really driving this is consumers want better for you products, and that's in the snack part of PepsiCo's portfolio and in the beverage part of the portfolio, and they're working towards that. But to get a Dorito to qualify as organic isn't a totally simple task. I mean, if you think of a Dorito, it has that bright orange cheese. I mean, I think that's it's not, not a th- color
0: in nature, <laughs>
2: is it? not. Not generally, I don't think. So it's definitely a challenge and technology's improved and they're trying to get more and more of these products to qualify for these growing natural parts of the supermarket.
0: What about the purchase of uh, Whole Foods by Amazon? That's got to feed into this conversation because you know there's a gate. You're not getting into Amazon if you're not uh, following all their rules and regulations in terms of what the food contains or what it doesn't contain.
2: So there's some speculation by analysts that I've spoken with that this is actually going to be helpful for big companies like Frito-Lay and getting some of these healthier products into Whole Foods. So Amazon already carries this line of of chips called Simply uh, that are simply Doritos, simply Cheetos that that fit technically the Whole Foods guidelines but aren't actually in Whole Foods yet. Okay,
1: so First of all, you know, when you say healthier, I just am seeing air quotes around all of that because, first of all, I can't imagine that the actual nutritional value will change all that much. But I'm also wondering, how much more is the price tag going to be on healthified
2: junk food? It's a great question. The healthier segment of the snack market is what's growing at an accelerated pace. And part of that is because people are willing to pay more for products that they think are healthier or have cleaner labels You know, don't have those things that people are trying to avoid like GMOs or artificial colors or flavors or preservatives. So PepsiCo as a whole is trying to push into this higher market, higher margin market, where they can charge more because the consumer is willing to pay for it.
0: Well, didn't Pepsi already buy into this this business, right? I mean, didn't they make a purchase that would allow them to then get in? I mean, they bought Stacy's pita chips, right?
2: Correct. Stacy's is already in Whole Foods. Uh, and they have other products uh, in their portfolio that are either in or qualify. But what's really important to talk about here is that these are the Simply line is covering their core brands. So it's things like Fritos and Doritos. These are the big money makers for Frito-Lay and for PepsiCo as a whole. And if they don't figure out a way to sort of push these big brands a little bit towards premium, they're, they risk getting caught on the one hand by value plays and on the other hand by these healthier, more expensive snacks. Well,
1: Jenny, can you give us a sense of how these Doritos, Torito, Tostitos and other Itos uh, that they sell, how they're actually doing? I mean, have they actually seen some kind of cannibalization in that whole uh, line based on the increase in desire for, for healthier foods?
2: So based on my reporting, all of these chip brands are still doing pretty well. They've actually managed to avoid some of the trouble that uh, Pepsi, for example, has gotten in on the the soda side of things uh, because people are still snacking. But when they took steps to make products more healthy, uh, as in, for example, they have reduced sodium Lays, just regular Lays, but with less salt, and they've actually pushed growth, accelerated growth beyond what the rest of the Lays portfolio was doing. So they've sort of proven that healthier products work to drive sales. And I think largely people who are buying the the in-the-natural-aisle not necessarily cannibalizing. Maybe those are customers who've moved away from the products altogether, and now they're willing to do it.
1: I will just say, full disclosure, my eight-year-old son absolutely loves Lay's. When I've tried to give him the baked, not fried ones, he has rejected them. <laughs> He's like, these aren't Lay's. <laughs> so, I mean, there is also give the question. Give him a gold
0: star, all right?
1: <laughs> gold for star identi- for what? Well, for Identify, identifying yes. the, the le- like least healthy uh, aspect Whoa. of food. Uh, but he definitely um, distinguishes it, so I imagine others will,
2: too. I mean, I don't know if you tried Simple but do they really taste the same? Well, it's funny. A lot of these chips, I mean, if you think about plain Lay's potato chips, they already pretty much fit into this category. Like there aren't a lot of crazy ingredients in a plain bag of Lay's. They're basically like potatoes with oil and salt. Uh, So some things it's- You're making me feel a little better. (laughs) Yeah, some things it's pretty similar and it really is sort of the messaging that's changed. Other things like Doritos and Cheetos, you have to imagine that the ingredients are pretty different. So it's sort of- depends on which brand you're talking about. But uh, I think the big message here is that it's really in the marketing and the messaging and trying to appeal to this different set that isn't already picking up a bag of you know chips in their normal grocery shopping.
0: All right. Well, like, can, can you just talk briefly about something that we know is off the healthy chart because it's not smoking and cigarettes and yes. the cost of a pack of cigarettes in the city of New York? Tell us what's happening.
2: So cigarettes in New York uh, have just been – the bottom price has just been raised by – it's now going to cost at least $13 a pack to buy cigarettes in New York City. That's the highest in the country. New York was already the most expensive place to buy cigarettes in the country, but it's uh, raised even higher. So it's tough to get cigarettes here. Well, when New York originally rose prices on cigarettes, was
1: there a material decline in smoking rates?
2: There is evidence that raising prices leads to declines in in purchasing volumes. That being said, New York is one of the places in the country that has the highest um, the highest amounts of people basically selling cigarettes that aren't legally here. Lucy's, basically, and other things.
1: And people who go to uh, pick your state and then they come back with these huge cartons of cigarettes and they sell them out of their back trunks. I've seen that happen.
2: Yeah, I'm from North Carolina originally. And I will say that when I first got to New York, just looking in windows and seeing how much cigarettes cost, it's just insane to think of the difference. I mean, it it makes sense that there are people who make a business off of driving to other states and, and coming back here and selling them for a higher price but still lower than that, thirteen dollars a pack.
0: Yeah, well, and and also I believe that they're going to be a, a pro, there's going to be a prohibition on uh, pharmacies uh, selling uh, tobacco products when their licenses come up for renewal.
2: Well, CVS has already stopped. Correct. Selling cigarettes, um, they made a, a push saying, you know, we're about trying to.
0: Well, the company CVS Health.
2: Exactly, we're trying to be a company that promotes health. We're not going to do this, but it's interesting. It's going to it's going to be a big deal. It's going to have a big impact on the industry um, when there are fewer and fewer places you can buy cigarettes. That being said, the consumer is very loyal. I mean, smokers will buy. Have proven that they will continue to buy cigarettes no matter what the price is. So, it's a, it's sort of we'll have to see whether this really has an impact on smoking rates or not. So loyal that some could say that uh, they're addicted, Jenny
1: Seraine, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Uh, oh, Jenny Kaplan, uh, thank you so much for for joining us. Truly, a pleasure having you, Jenny Kaplan is beverage tobacco and cannabis reporter for Bloomberg News joining us in our eleven three o studios.
0: Well, Tropical Storm Harvey has now prompted at least 14 U.S. refineries to shut or reduce production. This affects about 4 million barrels a day of U.S. processing capacity. That's around 22% of the nation's total. Here to tell us more about commodities, energy, as well as agricultural, is Mike McGlone. He is our commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our studio. And Sal Gilberti. He is the president and the chief investment officer and co-founder of 2 Creo. Trading, based in Brattleboro, Vermont. Sal, I want to begin with you because I know we're going to talk a lot about energy, but I want to give you the opportunity to just set the stage in terms of what is the agricultural dynamic for farmers and for end markets, such as cotton.
3: Sure. Um, Cotton is a big one. Cotton has taken an enormous hit. Farmers were expecting a bumper crop in cotton, particularly in Texas. And um, as we've seen from articles and news reports and industry reports, a lot of the cotton, even even cotton that was harvested, was damaged because the the storm basically ravaged cotton that was in storage, cotton that was sitting on the docks, cotton that was uh, harvested in on the sides of the field. So cotton's had a big impact, and we've seen a, a, a price rally in cotton the last two weeks in anticipation. Of that, I think what people uh, haven't yet factored in, and in fact the markets are making new lows as we speak in corn and soybeans, is that in the path of Harvey, the current path uh, as it's it's headed up into. Um, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee. There are unharvested bushels of corn. There are unharvested bushels of soybeans out there that represent roughly um, the corn 12 percent of the projected ending stocks for this year's crop and um, potentially threatened are the equivalent of about 83 percent of the potential soybean surplus. Now, those those things aren't all going to be damaged. But I think you may take the um, change the balance sheet. There's a potential to change the balance sheet here, which could potentially support prices.
1: Well, yeah, I was just about to say uh, 83 percent of the soybean surplus uh, could get affected and possibly even wiped out. I mean, based on the trajectory of the storm, what's your projection for how big the damage might be to some of these unharvested crops? It's really a stunning number.
3: I think it, it entirely depends for corn on wind at this point. If, it, if the crops get wet, it's okay. It may raise the cost a bit because you've got to dry your corn once you harvest it. Soybeans is another matter. If they're if they're sitting in water for a while, they're, they're not quite as far along as corn in their maturity. Um, there could be some significant damage. Now, you're not going to lose all those crops. Crops are used to being rained upon. But because we're making such extreme price lows right now, and because actually there's a seasonal, uh, a year ago today, Cotton, corn, and soybeans all price-bottomed, and there's a, a seasonal strength that comes in uh, beginning in September for all of those crops. So Harvey may actually support a seasonable, season, seasonality uh, effect of, of bottoming prices on those three crops. And again, cotton has already rallied, but corn and soybeans, no one, no one seems to be looking
0: at them right now. Well, we're going to look at them uh, after you said so, of course. But uh, I want to bring Mike McGlone into this because, Mike, uh, I, I got the report that Motiva Enterprises Port Arthur facility, which is the largest in the United States, is said to be shutting because of severe flooding issues. Tell us about the availability of refined product because, you know, if you got soybeans, if you have corn, you're going to need to get it to market. Yeah, that's been the key factor in the
4: energy market from the uh, hurricane is this reduction in supply, most notably of distillate, which means, number one, unleaded gas and diesel. So what's happened so far is obviously unleaded gas has taken off. It's now up 14% on the year versus WTI down down 14%, which has blown out the crack spread. And the crack spread is the indication is when you take crude uh, a, a barrel of crude oil and you convert it to unleaded gas. And when that moves out, it means refineries are making money. But the key thing that's happening is it's really Reducing this supply. Now, that supply is going to come back. It just doesn't be, it's not replaced. So it's going to reduce inventories, gasoline inventories, which are historically high. But the key thing is before the hurricane, inventories are already trending down. So it should accelerate that. It's obviously accelerating the increase in in um, unleaded gas prices. So it's helping rebalance the U.S. energy market. One issue, though, it's reducing exports, which are on a bull market trend. So that's going to hurt for a little while.
1: Well, and it's sort of interesting when you say rebalance, that should end up helping crude values, I would think, because if there's a rebalancing and a diminishing of the supplies eventually down the line, you would guess that the demand for crude would go up, and yet the value is declining again, yet yet again today.
4: Yeah, well, that's part of it because now that we're bringing down the re- the refining of, I mean, all crude oil is essentially really worthless until it's refined. So once it's refined, then it has value. So we're bringing down that refinery demand, which is obviously reducing demand for WTI. So the key thing is what's happening is Brent WTI has moved out. And Brent, which is global seaborne, is Doing fine, that it's getting it's seeing reduced supply of WTI in the market, reduced prices, and that's blowing that spread out. But overall, this is a a bullish indication, it's just showing up in the distillates more and unleaded guests. The key thing underlying this before that people need to remember is these trends were already favorable before the hurricane. And one bottom line is the declining value of the dollar overall. That was a very favorable trend for all and all commodity prices, most note and definitely metals. Yeah, let's continue.
1: Thank you so much, Mike McGlone Commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and of course, our thanks to Sal Gilberti. He's president and founder of Tucrium Trading and focusing on uh, those soybeans and that corn that has yet to be harvested and what effect that could have on the U.S. economy and, and, and those particular commodities. Well, there was a headline today on the Bloomberg. From stocks to bonds, the bear market signals are multiplying. To get a sense of whether that's an accurate reflection of the risks that uh, Hugh Johnson Thanks. We're going to get to talk with Hugh Johnson. He's chairman and chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors, which oversees $1.2 billion and is based in Albany, New York. Hugh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. So do you agree with the assessment that the warning signs of some kind of broader deterioration in markets is imminent?
5: Uh, there, there's certainly some some warning signs when you start to look at the performance of sectors, for example, and you see that utility stocks have been performing very well. That's ordinarily a very defensive sector of the market and actually the best-performing sector of the market during bear markets. Uh, You also see, of course, large-cap stocks. I think it can be explained away, but large-cap stocks outperforming small and mid-cap stocks. And you see a number of things in the credit market, such as quality spreads opening up a little bit, Uh, not much, but a little bit. So you do see some signs, but I think overwhelmingly, if you take a look further back towards the election, if you take a look at the, the complete picture, which includes not just the, the signals coming from the markets, but also important economic and monetary numbers. Uh, for example, bank lending, money growth, liquidity, leading indicators for the economy. They say that we have further to go in the current cycle. So, yeah, you can be worried. You always can be a little bit worried, as you know, Lisa. But I think that you'd be probably overstating the worries by moving to too much towards cash or a very defensive bear market position.
0: Hugh, uh, can you be bullish on stocks and accept the possibility that there will be no tax reform bill, that there will be no change in financial regulations, at least as far as approval from the Congress is concerned? I'm not talking about executive actions here.
5: I can be very bullish on stocks, Pim, but I can be very concerned about valuation. Uh, They're really valuation. When you know, you know, and I know, and I think we all kind of know or sense that the economy is growing at a very slow pace. And when you take that, it doesn't give you the kind of earnings numbers that would really justify the current levels of stocks. Or might say we're fairly valued, but the upside potential is fairly limited. So something has to happen to give us the kind of earnings that we really need to get the market to go on the upside. One of the two things would be, of course, tax reform. That would give us a little bit of a lift to corporate profits and S&P 500 earnings. But quite frankly, you know, if you reduce the corporate rate to 22 to 26 percent, uh, it gives you some upside from the current level and it gives you some better earnings, 8 percent instead of 6 percent through 2018, but not not quite, a, not a whole lot. Uh, the, the, the real thing that has to happen is the, the consensus forecast for earnings, which is much brighter than I think that the, the the economic forecast will allow statistically. The consensus forecast is is really optimistic. If you get that you can make the case for higher stock prices. So uh, I'd be bullish, but I'd be very concerned or worried or concerned about the valuations. So what's your hedge right now? Well, my hedge right now is I'm not buying the real hedge. is not buying any stocks at current levels. I'm maintaining or preserving my current you know, allocation to equities for an account or a portfolio that says, let me have 50% in equities and the balance being in fixed income. I'm about 60%. The question is, would I add to that portfolio at current levels. And given those concerns about valuation, uncertainty about valuation, I'd have to say that, no, look, I'd look for a better entry point, and a better entry point would be somewhere be in the neighborhood of 4 to 7% below current levels. And I think, you know, with the volatility of the news that we're getting, uh, the, the international news, particularly North Korea, things like that, could touch off a correction, which would get us down to levels that make much more sense. We've got to have a better a better entry point, Lisa.
0: Hugh, what if uh, you're an investor who is willing to take on more risk? What would you recommend if someone wants to put the pedal to the metal and says, you know what, I think this is going higher and I really want to participate?
5: Well, we've got plenty of clients that are just like that. Uh, most of them right now are a little bit cautious, which is sort of surprises me, given the performance of the markets. But if they want pedal to the metal... Now, the first thing I'd say is, look, uh, you know, don't 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 have a uh, your guidelines say fifty percent stocks, fifty percent bonds. Uh, you know, give give me a little bit more room. Say that uh, raise your target for equities to eighty percent. In which case, I'd probably be up around ninety percent in in stocks. So it's really up to the client to say, if I want pedal to the metal, I want to raise my allocation to equities or my target, and I would be raising it from fifty to eighty percent. And then if you want to do something about that, you buy the kinds of things that really work in bull markets. And of course, technology has been a great performer, great relative performance. And there's a lot of companies in the technology sector, uh, well-known names, which uh, are the kinds of stocks that you want to own in the portfolio. And you might buy some small cap, but believe me, that has not been performing well.
1: Hugh, is there any asset that you're selling right now?
5: Uh, no, there's no asset that I'm really selling other than the fact that I'm reducing my exposure as best I can uh, to fixed income because my expectation is uh, we've got higher rates. I don't think I'm the first person to say that. In fact, I've been saying it for four years and I haven't really gotten a whole lot of it. But nevertheless, I really think that uh, the handwriting's on the wall. The Fed's going to move towards restraint in response to that. Short long rates going up. So it's not so much that I'm bailing out. fixed income, but I'm really reducing my duration or maturities or however you want to say it Um, in in, uh, fixed income securities. I'm trying to avoid it. And then I'm avoiding things like, um, you know, consumer staples. I really don't like it as a defensive sector. Uh, Telecommunications, avoiding it. Uh, It's a very defensive sector. Well, maybe on a little bit there, but you want to underweight that. Those are defensive sectors. They don't work in bull markets. It's just it's that simple.
0: Hugh, uh, you've heard a lot, I'm sure, about the merging markets. People trying to move money outside yeah. the United States. You buy that trade?
5: I do. I do. We've done that recently. You know, for the longest time, Pim, as you know, uh, the international markets generally emerging and developed just significantly underperformed U.S. markets. And I mean, I'm talking about 10 years. So more more recently, and I really mean this year, 2017, we've seen positive relative performance in response to improving economic numbers and earnings numbers coming from other parts of the world. So we've raised our, our exposure to international. We raised it. From a very low, almost non-existent number, up to seven to ten percent of a portfolio that that of the equities in a portfolio that doesn't sound like a lot. That sounds like a fairly low allocation, but it's pretty uh, pretty meaningful change for us. So yeah, I do buy it. I buy uh, I buy buying uh, the emerging as well as developing and, but be a little bit careful. I warn everybody to be a little bit careful about China, where we have debt levels that, as you know. are are not at all low. There's a lot of risk, a lot of leverage, and a lot of risk in China.
1: Sounds like a a little bit of treading water at this point, waiting for something to happen, yeah?
5: Yeah, something happened, Lisa, and I think what I'd love to see happen, and I've been waiting a long time for this, we haven't gotten it yet, is really the decline in in stocks to levels that make a lot more sense. Uh, Valuation continues to be a very big concern, and you have to say that primarily because you try to make the case for a uh, better economy, better earnings, stronger economy, stronger earnings, and you can't do it. It's, it's 2 to 2.3 percent growth in the economy, and under those conditions, you don't get the kind of earnings that you really need.
0: Thank you, Hugh Johnson. Well said. Chairman, Chief Investment Officer, Hugh Johnson Advisors, helping to manage more than $1.2 billion, and joining us from Albany, New York.
1: U.S. second quarter growth was revised upwards, suggesting there is more momentum than some people have been expecting. Uh, In the U.S. economy, of course, there still is a huge question of what the damages and the ongoing fallout from Hurricane Harvey will do, as well as to turmoil in Washington and how much uh, this will crimp future growth. Here to give us a better sense of that is Carl Riccadonna, of course, uh, our chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios, Carl Uh, How much of an effect will Hurricane Harvey have on uh, GDP in the U.S.?
6: Well, of course, there's a a tremendous localized impact. Uh, Houston is uh, the fourth largest uh, metropolitan area, uh, and we should see uh, a range of uh, economic data series uh, impacted. However, uh, when we look at the national aggregate and look at GDP Uh, impacts around the times of uh, other major storms, uh, be it Katrina or Sandy or whatnot, uh, there's not likely to be a huge national impact. And, And here's part of the reason why. Well, first of all, uh, Houston is only the fourth largest city, so the rest of uh, you know much of the rest of the uh, country can uh, step in uh, to uh, uh, replace uh, production that may have been taken off offline uh, in Houston. In some regards, now certainly with you know pipelines and oil refineries, that's not the case. But uh, in some other industries, uh, there can be some uh, catch up. Uh, but the other part of the story is here uh, we are in uh, August, obviously, uh, which means that there will be a full month of rebuilding and reinvestment and repair and replacement of the capital stock, uh, which will actually uh, lift economic activity. So hurricanes have a tremendous uh, negative impact on the capital stock, uh, but that's stock, not flow. GDP measures the flow of production in the economy, uh, and so uh, GDP will actually be partly boosted uh, by the uh, recovery efforts. You know, uh,
1: one thing that caught my eye this morning, there was a report saying that more than 80% of the people who have lost their homes to flooding in Houston do not have flood insurance. And I have to wonder, I understand the point that rebuilding creates some kind of economic uh, growth. At the same time, couldn't there potentially be a real hit to the wealth of these individuals and their families?
6: Absolutely, there will be a uh, a wealth impact uh, uh, due to the unfortunate circumstances of folks not being uh, uh, properly or adequately uh, insured, whether it's their house or uh, or other personal property like autos and whatnot. Uh, however, those items will have to be replaced as life goes on, and uh, you know perhaps there'll be renters for some time, but there will be a, a big demand obviously for housing stock uh, in and around the uh, Houston area and there will be a big demand for replacement of uh, autos and uh, those are uh, those, those will lift the economic activity. So we have some uh, period where uh, part of the economy is taken offline, and that's a negative for GDP, uh, but then the restoration efforts uh, tend to largely offset that, and this is consistent uh, with what we have seen around other major uh, natural disasters. Carl, i wonder if you could just comment on the
0: uh, second quarter GDP revisions that we've received, and also uh, what that might portend for future performance of the economy for the rest of the year.
6: Absolutely. So when you say revisions, uh, a lot of uh, folks uh, immediately uh, tune out or uh, or uh, uh, turn turn the volume down. Not when they hear uh, your voice. However, uh, these revisions were uh, relatively interesting. So while uh, we saw much stronger than expected uh, performance uh, in the second quarter, so we went from two point six percent all the way up to three uh, percent growth. But it wasn't all revisions. There was also new information on uh, corporate profits, uh, and so we saw corporate profits uh, increase uh, one. 0.3% Uh, in the uh, second quarter. That was after a negative reading in the first quarter. Uh, And it's even more impressive if we look at it in in year-on-year terms. And this tells us that uh, corporate profit uh, gains are, in fact, uh, accelerating. Uh, This is relevant because we were in a corporate profits recession uh, for much of 2015 and 2016. So the rebound in profits uh, tells us that the economy is on firmer footing, uh, and this will support uh, hiring gains and also business investment decisions. Uh, And so we have an economy that's accelerating you have corporate profits as a backstop and this creates a positive feedback loop and so for just a second lisa for for this reason i think that a uh, fed funds rate increase still is very much a possibility for year-end and also this is going to increase capacity constraints in the economy uh, and potentially drive this much awaited uh, uh sluggish period of productivity growth we may finally see the rebound in response to this
1: Carl, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. Anyone who's been following earnings and anybody who's seen what the stock market has done in response shouldn't be surprised that corporate profits are better. Does this change your view at all?
6: Well, this makes me uh, a little bit more confident in our uh, above consensus forecast for uh, economic growth in the back half of the year. So the profit story is positive, but also uh, the main driver of the upward revision of GDP was consumer spending. So a lot of times when you get a, a stronger than expected uh, revisions to GDP, uh, you'll say, well, OK, that helped the current quarter, but uh, it's going to take away from future quarters. And uh, That was not the case here. This showed that there is more underlying momentum for consumers, which have been the pred- dominant driver of economic growth. So uh, taking this into account, I did not change my second half growth forecast uh, uh, appreciably, uh, but it does boost overall year on year growth just because you had a stronger performance in the second quarter. So we're now 2.4% for full year uh, 2017 growth. 2.4%,
0: 2.4%, and you think that the rate increase is still on the table for the Fed? I think
6: Reserve. the rate increase is still on the table. So uh, the Fed and a number of Fed speakers have said they need to see uh, inflation rebounding. If we're seeing a material, sustained upshift in economic growth, policymakers will have the confidence that inflation is going to follow suit.
0: Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Carl Riccadonna joining us as the chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at Reconomics.
1: Reconomics.
0: Reconomics. Well, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? All right. Thanks very much. Riconomics. Well done. Well done.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.